We read the Word of God in Psalm 87. Our text is made up of verses 4 through 6. We will pay special attention to them as we read the psalm. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. And here's our text. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this man was born there. And of Zion it shall be said, this and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there. As well the singers as the players on instruments shall be there. All my springs are in thee. Beloved saints in Christ, this morning by baptism, Phoebe Noel Van Bemmel became a member of this congregation. In that connection, two pieces of paperwork had to be filed. In the first place, there is somewhere in the clerk's keeping a book. And in that book, another name is to be written, Phoebe Noel Van Bemmel. Not only was she on such a date born, but on such a date she is baptized. And there is a permanent record that she has until such time as she is no longer a member of the congregation a right to all the benefits of membership in the congregation of Georgetown PRC. The second piece of paperwork is a certificate given to the parents so that not only has the church a record but the parents also an evidence of this baptism. What happens today and the paperwork associated with it is something like being born into a civil state. When one is born, one becomes a citizen of the United States of America. But as evidence of that, paperwork must be filed with the civil government. A birth record must be made of the birth of another citizen and then a birth certificate given to the parents as evidence that the state, the civil government, recognizes this child is a citizen. And our text takes that concept and says it's true in an even more foundational, wonderful and gracious way. This is what God does. Figuratively, of course, but this is what God does when somebody is reborn in Jesus Christ. Indeed, to be born in Zion in the Old Testament was really to be born into the kingdom of God. It was to be born into the covenant and church of God, for Zion represented all of Israel. To be born in Zion then was to enjoy and have a right to all the blessings that life and membership in Zion 
in Israel pictured. The glory of Jehovah could be enjoyed. Fellowship with Jehovah. Unity among the Israelites. A right to come to the temple and to worship Jehovah there. The enjoyment of the love of God. The defense and the preservation of God. The participation in the rich communion of saints. All of this is a right which they have who were born in Zion. And the same right is afforded to all today who are born, not just into a church and outward congregation, but into the body of Jesus Christ. And our text says, so important is it that there be some objective record that somebody was born in Christ, that God writes it in a book. I call your attention to our text under the theme, Zion's Birth Records. Let's notice first the names recorded. Second, the births indicated. And third, the divine recorder. Verse 4 lists the names, not all of the names, but some of the names that are written in that book. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know thee. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. Five names. What strikes you immediately is that these are names of nations, not individual people. You know Babylon to be the capital of the nation of Babylon. It was both a city and it was a nation which became a world power. A world power that would hate the people of God and take Judah into captivity. You know Philistia and Tyre as, as countries immediately surrounding Israel. Nations with whom they might come into direct contact. Sometimes these nations very much were their enemies physically in an earthly sense. Always they were their enemies spiritually. Ethiopia is to the south and west of Egypt. Four, you say, I see four nations, but isn't Rahab the name of a person? Why is one person's name mentioned along with four nations? And the answer is that here the word Rahab does not refer to that woman in Joshua's day who hid the spies and a Gentile woman who was saved in a marvelous way but Rahab refers to Egypt. Nor is this the only place in the Bible where the word Rahab refers to the nation of Egypt. Just turn the page in your Bibles to Psalm 89, verse 10. Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. So there Rahab is used with reference to some nation that Jehovah destroyed. And then I won't read it, but if you were to go to Isaiah 51, verses 9 and 10, it would be clear that Rahab was that nation that was destroyed by the waters of the Red Sea through which Israel passed on dry ground. The word Rahab means arrogant one. And so with reference to the nation of Egypt, 
the impression is given that these nations whose names are written in this book of Zion's birth records, these nations have been those nations that set themselves against Jehovah and against His people and were bent on their destruction. And Jehovah says, but I have them written in my book. Nations. And then other parts of the text indicate that the Lord is viewing these nations from the viewpoint of the nation as a whole. He does not in this text have particular individuals in mind, first of all. Let's go through the text and see that a moment. The end of verse 4, this man was born there, but the word man is in italics. This nation was born there. And the same in verse 6, the Lord shall count when he writeth up the people, this Man or nation was born there. Only in verse 5 can it be said this and that man was born in her. Yes, as the Lord writes the names of nations in his birth records, he has in mind those specific members of the nations who have truly been born again in Jesus Christ. You would think the Lord is interested in saving persons. But the reference to nations suggests that he in fact is interested in saving his people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And his saving purpose is to gather in one in Jesus Christ all kinds of nations and races. The second thing to notice about the birth records here is that the name Israel is not mentioned. That doesn't mean that Israel is excluded. It's understood that Israel is one of those nations that's in the Lord's birth records. For it is in Zion that all these other nations are born. The Lord has a special love for Zion, for Israel, and for His people. But in addition to Israel, the Lord loves nations. And so this aspect of our text is prophetic. It's prophetic of the salvation of Gentiles. But it is prophetic of the salvation of Gentiles, not just a Gentile here, a Gentile there. It is prophetic of the salvation of Gentiles as groups as ethnic groups. Early on in the time of Israel's history, she understood that the Lord would save some Gentiles. Jehovah had promised to Abraham, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then as Israel was formed at Mount Sinai and given the various laws, there were laws included regarding how people from other nations, Gentiles, would be brought into the covenant. And early on, in the Mosaic era, and in the time of the judges, in the early time of the kings, it was understood by Israel that there will be some Gentiles saved. They will become Jews, though. We call them proselytes. But about the time of the later kings and the prophets, the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs, the idea became more widely proclaimed and revealed to Israel that there would come a day when it wasn't just a Gentile here and a Gentile there saved by becoming Jews outwardly, but there would come a day 
when Jehovah would save a Dutchman, a Grecian, an Indian, not by making them to be like Jews, but by making them true believers in Jesus Christ, retaining all the characteristics of that race or ethnicity in which they were born. That's the prophecy going on here. We don't know exactly when the psalm was written. It could have been written about the time of David. It could have been written about the time of Hezekiah. The latter is more likely, in light of this general train of thought, that Israel, by the time of Hezekiah, with the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, are coming to see the point more clearly that the psalm sets forth. The gospel will go to Gentiles. There is not in the text, and I doubt any of you were afraid there was, a denial of limited atonement. There is not in the text a suggestion that each and every Gentile head for head would be saved any more than every Jew head for head was saved. There is in the text a prophecy that the people of God in every nation will be brought into spiritual Zion, the body of Christ. And now we can trace the fulfilling of that prophecy and remember that there could be no fulfillment of it except for one chief event, that chief event which turned all of history and to which the sign of baptism this morning pointed. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. For whether Jew or Gentile, and if Gentile, whether from Philistia or Tyre, Egypt or Ethiopia, Dutch, Netherlands, Germany, or anywhere else, there is no right inherent in me and in you to be born in Zion. What we have received from Adam and Eve, passed down from parent to child, is a corrupt nature that on the one hand is guilty, even before we have done any sin of our own, is guilty before God, and then a corruption which means that we will certainly bring forth many sins. Daily we will sin. And on account of that, we say and we understand, there can be in the work I do, or in the person I am by nature, no expectation of salvation and no hope of being born in Zion, but God sent His only begotten Son to take on Himself the sins and the curse due to us on behalf not only of elect Jews, but elect Gentiles. Shortly before He died, Philip and Andrew came to Jesus saying, there are some Greeks who want to see thee. And Jesus said to Philip, I don't have time right now to meet with those Greeks. Jesus in his human nature in carrying out the will of God did not just meet with anybody and everybody who desired to meet with him. But he did say, 
that when He was lifted up, that is, on the cross, He would draw all men to Him. That is, He would bestow on Jews and Gentiles the benefits that He earned in His saving death. And so He atoned. He bore the wrath of God for the sins of elect Jews and Gentiles alike. And He did so fully, completely. There you see the judicial basis for the salvation of sinners. And then our Lord Jesus Christ arose and ascended. And having ascended, He poured out His Holy Spirit unto His twelve apostles. And what did He do? He sent them to preach the gospel to all the nations. And so we can also see in the fulfilling of this prophecy the work of our exalted Jesus Christ causing the gospel to be, to be declared and sending missionaries throughout the world. For it's by the preaching of the gospel that they who are unbelieving, ungodly Gentiles, but appointed to eternal life, are brought to faith and to conversion in Jesus Christ. Now there comes a day of fulfillment yet in the future, a greater, a more marvelous day. John describes it in Revelation 7, when in the first section of Revelation 7, he says that he sees in heaven, in his vision, the 144,000 of Israel, 12,000 out of every nation, uh, rather out of every tribe, and then in addition, a multitude which no man can number out of every nation and tribe and tongue. Our Lord is gathering in his elect from every nation. There are two points of application to make on the basis of that part of the text. The first, of course, is this is why today not an ethnic Jew, but an ethnic Gentile, Dutch woman, now American baby can be baptized. It is the salvation of the Gentiles that explains the salvation of each and every member of this congregation, unless there be here an ethnic, a true Jew, I mean a biological Jew of whom I'm not aware, every one of us benefits from the fulfilling of this prophecy. And so application number one is that we stand in awe of God and be everlastingly thankful to Him for doing as He has promised. But in the second place, let us then appreciate the Catholicity of the church. We do. We say we do. We truly begin to. But examine your heart and life. Are there races about whom you would speak disparagingly? Are there countries for whose citizens you don't have the time of day? Remember this. The Lord Jesus Christ has his elect among them too. Having set forth, first of all, the names that are written in this book, let's see in the second place that the, 
the writing of names indicates a birth of a person or people. The births indicated. The character of the births is indicated by those names written. In the first place, we could say that those were real births, and that's obvious. Only a fraud, only a liar will write a certificate of live birth for a person who was not even born. living or dead now. I'm not meaning to bring miscarriages into this. My point is only a fraud would write a certificate of birth for a child that was never conceived. If there's a birth certificate, there's a birth. So here, the Lord is not talking about some grand scheme of His that He will never get around to accomplishing. He's talking about what He really does. In the second place, the births are spiritual births. For to be born in Zion is not to be born the first time. It is not to be born to a father and a mother on such and such a date. It is not the kind of birth that is attested to when one informs the civil government and receives a, a certificate of birth from the civil government. It is instead to be born again in Jesus Christ. How else can you understand being born in Zion when one is from Philistia or Tyre or Ethiopia or Egypt or Babylon? These were already born physically and somehow they are born in Zion. The Lord is speaking of the wonder and the grace and the miracle of being born again. Before I get now to develop the doctrinal point of regeneration, the third thing indicated about the character of these births are their wonderful and gracious character. Look at the list again. Babylon. She afflicts Israel, the Jews, and she will eventually take the southern kingdom captive. Egypt. She held the Jews in bondage, put them to hard work and rigor in the time of Pharaoh. She was no lover of, of the Jews. Tyre and Philistia are confederate against the Jews. You can read of that in Psalm 83, especially later on in the kingdom of Judah as the Lord troubles His people because they have turned away from Him to other gods and have worshipped Him in a way contrary to what He commanded in His word. He sends the nations against them to trouble them. But on the part of those nations, they aren't saying, we're Jehovah's people. He's sending us to trouble you. He's blessing us. Instead, they are saying, we hate the Jews. And we're going to trouble them. Tyre and Philistia are among them. These are the enemies of the people of God. And they are born again in Zion. Just on a personal level, I've been reminded why to pray for my enemies. 
by my enemies. I don't refer now to people I hate. I am not to hate. I refer to people who might hate me. Pray for them. There's a love they evidently do not know. There's a blessing they do not enjoy. And so, the greatest blessing that can come upon them, and not that they become my friend personally or start treating me better, but is that they know the love of Jehovah God for them. Pray for your enemies. And be ready. If the Lord works conversion in the hearts of your enemies to receive them as brothers and sisters in Christ and to say, now we can enjoy an eternity of fellowship together. That's the wonder, the miraculous character of the births that are here indicated. But the psalmist and the Holy Spirit through him is speaking then, finally and ultimately, of the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration, the spiritual rebirth in Jesus Christ to one who was first born in the flesh, but is dead in body, uh, in soul, and in spirit. That wonder of regeneration is spoken of in the New Testament ra rather often, you remember the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in John 3, one must be born of water and of the Spirit. Nicodemus is wondering, do I somehow get back into mom's womb? She's going to give birth to me a second time? No, says Jesus, of water and of the Spirit. You go to Ephesians 2, that sets forth the depravity that characterizes each one of us by nature and speaks of the wonder of God who gave us life in Christ and there are other places in the New Testament that speak of the work of regeneration. The Old Testament speaks of it too, but not by setting forth the heart and the meat of the doctrine. Rather, by speaking of types and pictures and prophecies. So you could go to Ezekiel 37, for instance where in a vision Ezekiel sees a number of bones scattered in a valley. And then he sees those bones, skeletons, come to life. And he sees flesh come on them again. And he sees people come back to life, a picture of regeneration in a vision in a very symbolic way. And you have that in our text as well. To be born in Zion is to be regenerated. It is to begin the life of God in Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. It is therefore to be planted in the church, and there is a connection not to be overlooked. That when God gives somebody new life, He doesn't give this person new life, and that person new life, and that person new life, but all of us who have this new life are very independent of and may be unaware of each other, but he says you're all going to be born in the same place. There's going to be a fundamental unity, something that unites all who are born again, and that something is Zion, the church, 
but not just the church as an outward organization, the church as the body of Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, what unites us is Jesus Christ himself and his spirit. That's part of the doctrine of regeneration. The how of the regenerating work of God. I cannot not explain further. The Canons of Dort, Heads 3 and 4, in referring to it, speaks of God's mysterious ways, things we cannot comprehend. But that you've been born again is your own testimony and experience who look to Jesus Christ for salvation and find in Him the power to live a new and godly life. This rebirth, this implanting of the life of Jesus Christ in us, this being born in Zion is pictured by baptism. Baptism does not make the child who's baptized be born again. The minister in administering the sacrament has no spiritual power over or for the benefit of the child. Only God, only by His Spirit, at His time appointed and in His mysterious way, brings that child to life. But there is for you and for me, as it were now, a birth certificate. Not just a record that God keeps in heaven, but a way of testifying to you and to me that this wonder has been worked in our hearts and lives. And part of that certificate is the sacrament of baptism. For in baptism there was a washing away with water, a reminder that the blood of Jesus Christ washed away our sins, and therefore we have the right to these blessings of salvation and citizenship in the church and kingdom of God. But also that water, a picture of the new life that God has given us in Jesus Christ and by His Spirit. As water not only washes away dirt, and so you use it to take a shower or a bath, but as it also germinates, and so you put it on a seed newly planted. So does the water of baptism point to the life-giving power of Jesus Christ. You've seen then this morning as best we can on earth what God does and how when he speaks of being born in Zion. And are you amazed at the wonderful grace God showed you when he did that to you? We've set forth already, we were undeserving. We too, even if Dutchmen, Indians, or German, or of some other nationality, were still to be counted among those who were enemies of the kingdom of God. But he said, I will make you my friends. And now we are. There's two applications to make from this point. The first is been set forth in the baptism form, but it's worth to underscoring, and that is that both the church at large and now specifically the parents must teach their children 
this. There is an assault today, has always been, but it surely is increasing, an assault, an attack by our arch enemy Satan on the church and on the church's youth. One aspect of that assault is to make young people born and raised in the covenant and church of God say, I don't really know who I am. I am not sure of my identity. That's a real assault. And there are young people or others in the church of Jesus Christ for whom it is really true that this is Satan's attack on them. But our text reminds us of what our fundamental identity is, that the parents must teach the children and the church must teach the children. And here it is, young children and teenagers and young adults, your fundamental identity, I will use the words of Lord's Day 1, I belong to Christ. Satan wants you to forget that. When you forget it, then you won't act accordingly. You won't live as though you belong to Christ. And Satan wants that. When Jehovah declares to us that we have been born in Zion, when he says, I've written your name in the book and I've published for you in the gospel the evidence that I did so, the child of God must say, now that is my identity and parents and the church must teach the children it is so. That's application number one. And application number two. When I know I'm a citizen of a kingdom, when I know that on the one hand I also have all the rights and benefits of citizenship in that kingdom, then on the other hand, I know that I also have the calling and obligations of citizenship in that kingdom, including to serve, if drafted, in its military. And in the case of being born again in Zion, it isn't a matter of wait to get a draft letter. Being born in Zion, it is our calling to live as citizens, to defend, to maintain, to be used by the grace of God to preserve the institution of the church of Christ and to be a witness to the world that we are different. And now the calling to live that way doesn't come just to parents and the calling to parents to teach their children, but every one of us here having been baptized, is to go home and ask the question, having been born in Zion, do I live and do I speak in such a way that others see? Then our text draws our attention to the fact that God records these names. These are names, they, we notice the names, we notice that they indicate a birth, but God records the names. I will make mention of Rahab, etc. And in verse 6, 
the Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there. In verse 4, that God will make mention means he will proclaim it. He will declare it. In verse 6 speaks of him writing up the people, but he isn't going to keep this book secret. He isn't going to keep it to himself. It's not a journal or a diary which goes in a secret place in the bedroom and nobody sees it but me because it is my private thoughts. The book in which God writes names is published. So I want to elaborate on the three aspects of the activity that God does in writing, but underscore that it is God's sole prerogative to do these three things. You and I do not help Him. He doesn't need nor ask for our help. He, in the first place, He writes our names in a book. Now we have to ask the question, what is this book? The Bible speaks of a number of books that God has. It speaks, first of all, of the book of life. The book in which are written all those whom God chose from eternity in Christ. This is not that book, although it's very closely related to that book. But that it is not that book is indicated by the fact that God is still writing in the book of which the text speaks. The book of life, God writes in no longer. He wrote all the names of all whom He chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. This book God is writing in yet. It cannot be the same book. This book is related to the book of life this way. When the book of which the text speaks is finished being written, when every name is written, it will have in it the exact same names as those who are written in the book of life. Not one more, not one less. But this book in which God writes is the book of those who, having been written in the book of life, have now come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's as God says in the book of life, this is what I will do. And in the book in which he writes according to our text, this is how far I'm coming in accomplishing what I will do. So why does God write in the second book? What's the purpose of the second book? If he already has a book of life and he already knows whom he will save, and the answer is, that the second book serves as a seal, as a divine record that we have been born again in Christ and have the rights and privileges of citizenship in His kingdom. The book of which the text speaks serves as a seal and a record that He is our Father and we can expect Him to care for us and to love us. That from Him comes faith, from Him comes every good gift, and if a trial comes, and if a trial not only comes, but if it's prolonged, and if it stays with us a long time, that's God in His love leading and guiding and sanctifying us through it. 
We have a right to the communion of saints and to eternal life. The book serves as a certain record of that. You may, in other words, in prayer, if Satan has accosted you and you in your own soul are doubting of the love of God or questioning his goodness, you may go to him in prayer. You may claim that which he's promised his people. And you may do so saying not only from eternity I was appointed to receive these blessings, but also by saying, you have begotten me in Christ. It is not right that my Lord and Savior should have died for me and I not experience his blessedness. And then his answer to you and to me will be this, not, oh yes, I forgot, you're right, I haven't been giving you those blessings, have I, and I should. But his answer to you and to me will be, my child, I've remembered, I've given them day after day. Only you're mistaken in thinking that trouble means I hate you. That's the first activity of God. He writes our names in the book. The second is that he publishes the record. Now this isn't stated explicitly in the text. But I indicated earlier that God makes known to us the blessings He's reserved for us in Christ. That He does that through the preaching of the gospel as it works faith in our hearts and He uses the sacraments to confirm and to strengthen that faith. So you and I have a glimpse into this book, not a glimpse into the name of that person in the book, the name of that person in the book, but a glimpse into the name of my, my name in that book. The Lord says to you and to me, you are my child, and he works in us faith to believe it. In other words, encompassed in this book and the Lord's activity of writing is both the work of the government or the clerk of the church writing in the church's book and the activity of the civil government or the clerk of the church in saying, here is your certificate, proof for you. You see, what the text is doing is reminding you and me then that we can be sure that all that the Lord has done in Jesus Christ for us is true. And the blessings are sure and amen. Then in the third place, the activity of God, according to this, is that he counts. The Lord shall count when he writes up the people. As he's writing in the book, he's counting. Now on the one hand, the Hebrew word translated here, count, doesn't just mean arithmetically to say one, 
two, three. Although that can be that can be part of it. The Lord is noting how many now He has saved, how many citizens of His kingdom there are. But even more, the word count has the idea of reviewing. Maybe like an accountant doesn't always put the numbers in the financial book, but he looks at the numbers in the book and evaluates them and ensures that they're right and adding up. The Lord is reviewing. It's as if he's reminding himself, but I don't mean to leave the impression that Jehovah needs the reminder and he would forget. The real purpose of this is to say the names of those written in that book and the life they have in Christ and the right to the blessings of salvation is something that is ever before the mind of the Lord. He does not forget. That's a comfort to you and to me with regard to our own salvation and to parents when it comes to the baptism and salvation of our children and our calling to raise them in the fear of the Lord. He will, inasmuch as He does not forget, He will give us the strength and the power to carry out our calling. And then come the day of judgment or the day of our death, we will not find suddenly that we thought we were in his favor, but are now out of his favor. He will say, I remember. I remember Christ died for you. I remember the Spirit renewed you. I remember. And now for you is heaven. Oh, the blessedness of being born in Zion. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, apply this word to our hearts and lives and build us up in faith and in godliness. May the entire day, a day of rest, be one in which we rejoice, sing, and meditate on thy goodness to us. For thou hast given us two lives, an earthly and bodily, which one day will be over, and a spiritual, which will never be lost, nor wilt thou ever forget about us, because thou hast given us to be born again in Christ. To thee be all praise, for Christ's sake. Amen.